0: G'day, welcome to Talking Finance. Well, apart from the start of the reporting season, this week was notable for another bit of lively inaction from the Reserve Bank. A significant non-event. Interest rates were kept on hold, as expected, but the statement contained a bleat about the Aussie dollar being too high. And well might the RBA directors bleat. In his July statement, Governor Philip Lowe said something like, Isn't it nice that the dollar has depreciated since 2013? And he added that an appreciating exchange rate would complicate the transition of the economy out of the mining investment boom. And so despite him, the dollar began appreciating immediately. Within a month, it had risen from 76 to 80.5, doing plenty of complicating. And that's where it sat just before the August statement came out on Tuesday. So this will weigh on the outlook for output and employment, said the statement. It could result in a slower pick-up in activity and inflation than we thought. And if Dr Lowe thought that would get it down again, he was wrong. It's still just under 80 US cents. So I chatted to the chief economist of REA Group, Nerida Connorsby, this week about what's going on in the real estate market, but I also asked her about the dollar, and specifically how high she thought it could go.
1: I doubt it will get to parity. I mean, if you have a look at the last time the Australian dollar hit parity, we had that once-in-a-lifetime mining boom. Uh, The rest of the the global economy or many parts of the global economy were either in recession or or in pretty poor uh, economic circumstances. So for that reason, I think this time it may get a bit higher. Uh, Again, uh, a lot of it also has to do with, with with what's happening with US growth, that the US economy isn't quite performing at the rate that many expected. Uh, There's a lot of political challenges in the US economy and as a result, this strong Australian dollar is more about a weak US as opposed to a strong Australia.
0: I guess um, the Reserve Bank will be trying to do something about it long before it gets to parity.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And look, I think it's interesting looking at, at the rate decision. I mean, they are looking at a lot of mixed data at the moment. We've got those... Jobs growth numbers are looking pretty good. I mean, particularly full time jobs growth, that, that was always the challenging area. That's looking pretty good. Consumers are pretty happy. We had that ANZ uh, Roy Morgan consumer confidence data come out to show that consumers are the happiest they've been since February. So, you know, that, that's really good news. Uh, but then we've also got that really low inflation. The Reserve Bank isn't really expecting that inflation rate to change all that much over the medium term there. They are expecting it to be below. Uh, their target rate, uh, and, and that Australian dollar obviously too strong as well, which which is causing a lot of problems. Uh, and then, of course, there's the housing market too. That you know, every time we see a cut in rates, we see a surge in demand on our site, and you know, and that flows through that surge in demand on our site is obviously flying through to price growth as well. So they do need to be really, really careful with the way that they move rates.
0: Yes, yeah, so and look what happened last year when they cut rates twice. The housing market took off again. This week we learned from CoreLogic's monthly indexes that it seems to be doing it again, but without any rate cuts, at least in Melbourne, a bit less so in Sydney. Nerida Connersby is seeing the same thing from the REA website.
1: Look, without a doubt, it is what we're seeing on site. We track demand, looking at the number of people uh, looking to buy, so searches on our site, and we compare that to listings. and. Demand over the last few months has been pretty choppy. It's been up and down. But in July, we saw another surge in demand. We've seen another peak in demand. And it does look like that the market is off and racing again. So, you know, I think things will continue to accelerate. Price growth will accelerate. But it probably won't quite be as strong as we saw over the last 12 months. And primarily due to those interest rates, the home loans starting to creep upwards.
0: What's behind the increase in prices, do you
1: think? There's a lot of things. I mean, people still have a lot of confidence in housing in Australia. There isn't a lot of alternative investments that many people like. You know, a lot of investors like the control they like over housing. So I think that's a really big factor. Uh, I think a lot of younger people want to be investors as well as owner-occupiers. It's interesting. I read a survey recently where... It found that under 30s, the majority of them aspire to own more than two homes. You know, they they want to own the home that they live in, but they also want to own an investment property. So, you know, housing has done very well for a lot of us, and you know, I think a lot of people do expect that to continue.
0: Except this time, the demand is not coming from China.
1: We can track where offshore buyers are looking, so you know, we can track it through ISP addresses. So it does give us some pretty interesting insights. We do know that. For example, people from the UK love Manly. Uh, We know that the Japanese still have a very strong affinity uh, for the Gold Coast. With Asian demand and particularly Chinese demand, we are starting to see it back off. So it it has been quite phenomenal, the growth in the number of property seekers out of China coming through and and looking at Australian property. And then that's obviously led to a high number of transactions as well. So it's backed off. We saw a drop in uh, the year to June. A lot of it, I think, has to do coming back to those building approvals starting to slow down. Uh, There's less stock for them to buy. uh, And as a result, there's there's less interest in the Australian market. But also other things such as increased taxes for foreign buyers are really starting to hit through. We did see particularly a drop off in Sydney. I mean, Sydney doesn't see anywhere near the, the level of Chinese interest that we see in Melbourne, for example, but Sydney started to back off. But we've also got issues with capital controls out of China. We've got a lot of problems for, for offshore buyers getting finance. So all of those things. It's not really one thing, but there are sort of lots of things that are really starting to flow through to the market and really impact those foreign buyers.
0: But it's interesting that foreign buyers and Chinese in particular are coming off, but nevertheless we're seeing a reacceleration of price growth.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. And look, I think just watching the data, I mean, it, it is pretty choppy, as I mentioned before. And I do think that the price growth that we saw in July, I mean, I think the price growth will continue, but I don't think necessarily it will be as strong as we've seen over the past 12 months.
0: Okay, that's enough of central banking and house prices for this week. I've now got a story for you that's really interesting if not quite as immediately important as monetary policy and the future of the country. But long-term, it could be more important. Yes, it's technology disruption, but in a new way. We've seen industry after industry suffer the turmoil and worse, shrinking margins, of disruption, including ant farms of fintechs coming after the banks. But I thought insurance was probably fairly safe because the main thing you need for that is capital, which is something you've either got or you haven't. Well, think again. You can rent capital, and Australia's Suncorp has obliged an insurance disruptor based in San Francisco called Trove, which has big ambitions to take on the world's insurance industry, and starting in Australia. So Trove was started by a bloke named Scott Walchick. I rang him up for a chat and asked him to explain what he's up to.
2: 2012, I started thinking about the the value in the information about the things that people owned. So we started of wrestle with some ideas around what would happen if we could help people collect the information about the things that they owned and then give them sort of control or agency over that information, keep that information updated, fresh, like this, their own personal inventory, uh, give them uh, control over it through the, through their smart device, What what sort of disruptions or transformations could we bring those consumers? What benefits could we bring those consumers through giving them control of that information? And we figured that you know if we could if we could keep people uh, you know in contact with it or in control of this information, that we could disrupt four big markets. We could disrupt insurance. We could bring great benefit to consumers in in e-commerce and the sharing economy. We could give them great advantages in retail and, and advertising and even finance and credit. Um, so that's what we set out to do. We said, let's first set out to try to help people collect this information because it's been, it's been so hard to collect this information in an analog world. We said, let's try to solve some of the problems about helping people collect it and keep it fresh.
0: You thought of it to begin with as, as a personal data business, did you?
2: Yeah. In fact, we continue to think about it as a personal data data business because there's so much value in that data. Here's how we sort of visualize where we sit in the world. So if you think about, I call it this, the arc of possession. Think about it as a bell curve where the you have x-axis would be time and the y-axis would be utility, personal utility. And the bell curve is sort of marked uh, by the poles. At one end, is what we could call acquisition, when something someone begins to possess something. And then the other end of that pole, the other side of the bell curve, is dispossession, when I get rid of something. And there's an enormous value, lots of technology that's been applied to those poles. And you can imagine companies like uh, like Amazon in acquisition and eBay at dispossession or Alibaba uh, acquisition side and Craigslist, for example, at uh, dispossession. So there's been an enormous amount of value created, enormous amount of technology applied to those poles. But the greatest utility that people have, that you know, people get from these, these things in their lives, is really between those two poles. And we've, we've said that's where Trove needs to live.
0: Now, all that's quite interesting, but what about insurance?
2: So the design philosophy behind what we do is really built around what we thought were the four key signals being given to us by the emerging sort of millennial Gen Z, Gen X, Gen Y user who really is signaling four ways that they are engaging in products and services from entertainment through banking services and other, all the other things that they're consuming in their lives. And those four things in not any particular order are, it has to be on demand and I'll go through these in a second, but on demand, has to be micro duration, in other words, don't lock me in for any long periods of time. It has to be unbundled, that is I don't want to pay for things in big groups of things, I only care about a few things. And it has to be what we call people optional. So starting from the top, on demand means it just has to be when I want it. It has to be mobile first. I have to be able to engage with it on, on the mobile device. And it has to be exactly what, whenever I need it. So if I'm going to use my mountain bike during the summer I want to turn on insurance on demand when I'm using it in the summer or my camera body over the weekend. I want to be able to turn on insurance. That's the on demand part. It's a super interesting, you know, if nothing else, that is probably one of the most important engagement moments for, for the engagement enhancements that we've had. The traditional insurance is, you know, you, you engage with a consumer maybe twice in one year, once when they buy it and once when they're, you're asked to renew it. Uh, You might engage them later on or during that year through a claim, but their people are paying for times when they don't need things. So it has to be on demand. It has to be what we call micro duration. Our policies and the technology that supports those policies literally measure and price risk to the second. So you only pay for what you use literally up to the second. And that is really in response to this generation that's saying, look, it's don't lock me into any long periods of time. Just, again, give it to me when I need it for whatever duration I need and then charge me for whatever I use. And then the unbundled part of that is also very clear to us that we like to say what iTunes did to the record album Trove is doing to contents insurance or the blanket policy where we're disaggregating it into its atoms into its small parts and allowing people just to choose. I only want to protect my bike my laptop, my camera, and my headphones. That's all I care about. That's all the things that are really um, important to me. And this speaks also to the whole, this generation, emerging generation's new relationship with ownership altogether. They care about fewer things and those things are really powering their experiences. So giving them on-demand, micro-duration, don't lock me in, unbundled experience. And then finally, it had to be Uh, we call people optional. That is, when we talk to this core user, they're really saying to us, look, I want to engage with a human when I want to. Otherwise, let me use the computer. Let me use chat, familiar ways of communicating and interacting. Let me use those tools to engage in this service. And we, for example, when when you make a claim, you actually engage with an intelligent chat bot.
0: Which is all very interesting, of course, but this is insurance for small things. What about the big items like cars, houses, life? Well, of course, that's coming.
2: You can't make that announcement, of course. That would be a premature. We are working on what we call advanced mobility solutions. And yes, uh, you know, the, the whole world of cars, of course, is changing. You're going to have cars that are owned and you're going to have cars that are borrowed. You're going to have cars that have a driver presence and you're going to have cars that have no driver And all of those create really interesting models for us. And I think you're going to be seeing uh, within the next six months, you'll be seeing or hearing a lot more from us in partnerships with very creative technology to start to provide this on-demand capability triggered by machines, triggered by events and uh, other kinds of signals. The big change, which is really interesting, I think, is we like to say that the kind of meta-narrative under which this all fits is that while life and risk hasn't in its sort of essence changed over the last even 300 years, people still get up in the morning, they care about their things, they care about not losing things, they want to have resilience and know that they can recover from financial or from you know, cash loss, what really has changed is the ability to measure life in ever smaller increments. So when you have GPS and telematics and wearables and, and the internet of things and the smart device in everybody's pocket uh, with all kinds of interesting, those things are sending out in the beacons and sensors. Those things are sending off literally hundreds of millions of signals every day. And those are gonna get denser and richer. And those signals can be captured by you know, a, a you know euphemistic you know listening ear in the cloud that could then begin to adjust and modify protections against risks uh, that are identified by that by those signals and that's kind of the long term plan for the trove protection platform.
0: So back to the start of the interview, you talked about how. It's yeah. really a data business and protection insurance is one of the things you're going to do. Um, remind us yeah. what the other things are and what are the plans yeah, to, sure. to do that? What are your specific plans?
2: If we've actually created a really compelling reason for people to trove their stuff, that's there that would be the verb usage of our pronoun. So if people start troving their stuff because they want to have a unique way for them to protect the things they care about, then we can imagine a time when when millions of people – are connected through the the connected universe, and they have their troves filled up with the information about the things that they own or the things that they've used. That becomes a really interesting profile under the control of the user, not under our control. So it's not our data. The data is under the user. Let's now, then it's incumbent upon us once we've let's say there's a world where there's millions of people, millions of troves filled up with the information about their things. We think, by the way, that's an, inve- an inevitable moment, not an inevitable trove moment. We think that's an inevitable moment for consumers, that they will, in fact, get control over the information about their things because there's so much value in information that when they're equipped with it, or they're armed with that and have control over it, that they will then be able to navigate the world and have value uh, given from that data in ways that are really unique. For example. I tell this story, one of our advisors is a gentleman by the name of Jim Nordstrom. You might recognize the name from the Nordstrom chain of department stores here in the United States. I tell the story, he so, said, so Jim, can you imagine one of your customers walks into your store and he or she is carrying a gigantic box on their shoulder and they set that box down on, on a table and they call over to themselves a number of your store clerks. They open up the box, and inside that box, perfectly organized, beautifully laid out, fully, you know, full color, is all the information about everything that that person has acquired in their, let's call their, we'll call this their fashion trove. So that fashion trove has all of it's not just what they bought at Nordstrom, but it's what they bought at the local boutique and every other competitor that you have. And that gives a profile of their fashion choices that they've made over the last whatever number, And from that information, you can then select, uh, you can then create a bespoke retail experience with that consumer. That's one example then of what Trove does. It equips the consumer then to navigate the world through the information about the things in their lives that enhance their lives. And that can impact everything from retail and average. Think about the advertising, the power that consumer would have over what offers are granted to them because they've been willing to divulge some of the information about the things in life. And by the way, they could do this entirely anonymously. You could be known by the things that are in your life. Now that sounds super hollow and shallow, I get it, but actually there's enormous value in that and helps you, it gives you a great deal of control over the way that you consume goods and services.
0: After that interview with Scott Wolczyk, I felt like I'd got a glimpse of far more than insurance disruption. It was a new way of thinking about things, and in particular, how the amount of data that is now being captured and used is going to change everything. But back to Earth, and to life and death, and the 1970s. Sam Shepard, the actor, died this week, aged 73. He was the subject of one of Joni Mitchell's best songs, Coyote, from her 1976 album, Hejira. He was married living on a 20 acre ranch in California and she was more or less living in studios recording what I think is some of the greatest music ever produced by anyone in history they had an affair it didn't last but no regrets Coyote we just come from such different sets of circumstances we just
2: come from such different sets of circumstances I'm up all night
0: in the studios and you're up early on your ranch
2: you'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending and I'll just be home with my real real, There's no comfort
0: in Just how close to the bone and the skin And the eyes and the lips you can get And still feel so alone And still feel related Like stations in some relay You're not a a hit-and-run driver No, no, racing away You just picked up a hitcher the white lines on the freeway. Thanks to the team here at Constant Investor. I'll be on leave next week, just for a week, to reacquaint myself with Maisie and Sam and to take them to the beach a few times. And Stephen Main is gonna fill in for me. But I'll be in your inbox this Saturday morning. Then next week it's Stephen. See you then. <laughs>